Chapter Three of Bonaparte in Egypt and the Egyptians of Today. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham McMillan. Bonaparte in Egypt and the Egyptians of Today by Haji A. Brown. Chapter Three: The Dawn of the New Period. The period which was to be that of the regeneration of Egypt and its people was ushered in by social and political storm and tempest, but the first warning note of its coming, after a brief moment of panic, was unheeded by the people. Nearly three centuries had passed since the country had been invaded by an enemy. That enemy was now the sovereign power. Under the grasping, selfish rule of its executive, the trade and commerce of the country had almost entirely disappeared. Thus isolated from the rest of the world, the people had no conception of the growth of the power and civilization of the European nations. They were, therefore, completely ignorant of the events and political impulses that were, though for the moment indirectly only, shaping the future that lay before them. There were both Englishmen and Frenchmen in the country at the time, but the rulers of the land, arrogant in their petty might, and the people not less so in their degradation, alike held all foreigners in contempt and thus profited nothing from their presence. They had, therefore, no means of knowing what the relations between the two great European powers were, or of anticipating how those relations were liable to affect their country. Yet the fact that brought about the opening of the modern period in their history, and thus decreed the ultimate fate of the country, was the mutual hostility that swayed the two powers. This hostility had no relation to Egypt or its people, and, but for contributing causes, could never have affected these. Yet it was the desire of the French government to strike what it fondly hoped would prove a decisive blow at the growth of English power in the East that was the chief inspiring cause of its decision to order the invasion of Egypt. The Directory, which was at the time the governing body in France, had indeed more than one reason for taking this step. Nor was it under the Directory that the eyes of the French had been turned to the valley of the Nile for the first time. Leibniz, in 1672, had urged upon Louis the Fourteenth the conquest of the country as an object worthy of his attention, declaring that the possession of it would render France the mistress of the world. Though nothing was done at that time to realize the far-seeing policy he advocated, there can be no doubt that the idea was never abandoned. Talleyrand, indeed, said on his accession to office he had found more than one project for its accomplishment lying in the pigeonholes of the foreign office. He himself entered heartily into the scheme, believing that it would be a most important move toward the fulfillment of his theory that the future of France depended upon the extension of her influence along the shores of the Mediterranean. Volney, the traveller and author of Ruin of Empires, having visited Egypt, had, in 1786, reported that it was in a practically defenceless condition. Magallan, the French consul at Alexandria, having for years urged the government to interfere on behalf of its subjects in Egypt, had in 1796 made a voyage to France with the express purpose of protesting against the indignities and ill-usage from which they were suffering. He fully confirmed the views of Volney and Leibniz. The Directory were thus at once shown the possibility of acquiring a colony of the utmost value, and provided with a reasonable excuse for its annexation. These and other arguments, against which the fact that the French nation was then at peace and on good terms with the Sultan of Turkey, the sovereign of the country, weighed as nothing decided the Directory. In March 1798, therefore, the order to organize an expedition for the conquest of Egypt was given to Bonaparte. 
Two months later, on May 19th, he set out in command of a vast armada, sailing from Toulon and other ports of the south of France. Thus it was the aspirations of the French nation for the extension of its influence in the Mediterranean, and for the acquisition of new colonies and its conquest rivalry with England, and not events in the country itself, that heralded the dawn of the new period. Eventually, though chiefly indirectly, this produced the greatest change in the condition and prospects of the people that their history records. The rapidity with which the French expedition was prepared, and the secrecy with which its destination was concealed, led the Directory and Bonaparte himself to hope that it would escape all risk of interference on its way to Egypt. In this they were not disappointed. But hearing of the assembling of a great military and naval force in the south of France, and believing that it was intended to make a descent upon the Irish coast with a view to cooperation with the rebels there, Lord Vincent warned Nelson to watch for, and if possible, destroy it. The people of India were then, however, like those of Ireland, in negotiation with the French, and in particular the famous Tipu Sultan, the Tiger of Mysore, longing to be revenged for the defeat and losses Lord Cornwallis had inflicted upon him, had sought their aid. Nelson was aware of this, Having a strong sense of the danger to English interests in India and the East generally, the possession of Egypt by the French would be, he guessed the real destination of the expedition. Finding that the French had got away to sea, he immediately started in pursuit. Acting upon his own conception as to its aim, he steered straight for Egypt. Bonaparte had, however, after leaving the French coast, proceeded to Malta, which he seized. Being thus delayed some days on his way to Egypt, Nelson passed without falling in with him. Thus it was that on June 21st the Alexandrians were startled by the approach of the English fleet. As soon as the character of the ships thus unexpectedly appearing on their coast became known, the town was thrown into a state of the greatest excitement. The governor, believing that the fleet was a hostile one, sent off to Cairo the messengers whose arrival there I have already chronicled, and at the same time sent other messengers to summon the Bedouins, or nomad Arabs, inhabiting the neighboring deserts to assist in the defense of the town. Nelson lost no time in sending ashore to seek news of the French, but the reception given to his officers was far from friendly. Refusing to credit the statement that the English came as friends and protectors, and not as enemies, the governor openly expressed his distrust, and in doing so he simply voiced the feelings of the people. Utterly ignorant of everything outside the narrow range of their own experience, it was indeed impossible for these to comprehend how the occupation of Egypt by the French could be a matter of vital importance to the English. So when Nelson's officers assured the government that they had asked nothing more than to await the arrival of the French and to buy a few supplies of which the fleet was in need, he answered them that they could have nothing. Egypt, said he, belongs to the Sultan, and neither the French nor any other people have anything to do with it, so please go away. It was a bold speech, and as foolish as it was bold, for no one knew better than the governor himself that he was quite powerless to oppose the English if they wished to land, or to take what they needed by force. It was a speech, too, worth noticing, for it affords a clue to much that puzzles the ordinary critic of Egyptian history. Judged by any known canon of social or international courtesy or policy, it was not less inexcusable than indiscreet, for it was as likely to enrage an enemy as to anger a friend. But it was just what one, knowing the people, might have expected, the utterance of the impulse of the moment, and therefore a full and truthful statement of the speaker's thought. For to the Egyptian mind the visit of a fleet of foreign ships of war could have no other object than the conquest or raiding of the country. Hence the English fleet must be a hostile one. 
it was neither lawful nor wise to give provision or succour of any kind to an enemy. Therefore, they had nothing to say to the English but, please go away. It was thus that the people of Alexandria argued then, and it is thus that the people of Egypt generally still argue. For they have always been incapable of taking a broad or general view of any subject. No matter how many-sided a question may be, they, as a rule, could see but one aspect of it at a time. They look, in fact, at all things through a mental telescope that, bringing one narrow and limited aspect of a subject into bold and clear relief, shuts from their view all that surrounds it. Hence, when, as they can and sometimes do, they change their point of view, the change is commonly as abrupt as it is thorough, and those who see only the surface tax them with fickleness. Of late years there have been signs that, at all events, the educated classes are learning to reason on surer and safer grounds. But if the reader would understand their story, he must ever bear in mind the narrow basis of their judgments, and therefore of their actions. While the answer of the governor to the English is thus illustrative of a point to be remembered in the character of the Egyptians, the life story of the man himself also helps us to more fully grasp their mental attitude under the changing circumstances of the period. This governor, Syed Mohammed Karim, was an Egyptian of humble birth, but one of pure Arab blood claiming to be a Said or Sharif, that is to say, a descendant of the Prophet Muhammad's family, and thus one of the Arab nobility. In his early manhood, this man, who, as a Syed, was and is blessed and prayed for by every Mohammedan in the world at every time of praying, was glad to fill the modest post of a weigher in the customs. Gifted with intelligence and other qualities that commended him to his superiors, by their favor and his own ability, he rose rapidly to become the local director of customs, and eventually, as we find him, governor of the town. That in this position he had the confidence and respect of his townsmen seems clear, and it is thus evident that, tyrannical and oppressive as was the rule under which they lived, there was an open path to place and power for able men. Bribery and corruption, it is true, were rife, so much so that we may safely assume that Syed Mohammed did not attain his high position wholly without their aid, but they did not play the dominating part assigned to them by historians of the day. We shall see but little more of this Syed Mohammed, for though still a young man, he had but a short span of life to run. Yet the little we shall see makes him a notable man, and one that should be studied. Bold, impulsive, proud, and fearless, with that decision of character so praised by Foster, quick to decide and unalterable in his decisions, deciding rightly from his own standpoint, but often with too limited a view, emphatically more of an Arab than an Egyptian type, and yet, in the few glances we get of him, illustrating most aptly the Egyptian character. Thus, as his answer to the English was essentially Egyptian and not Arab in substance and manner, so also was his subsequent action. For an Arab in such a strait would have sought to gain time by fair speaking, so that he might take such measures as he could, or at the worst secure better terms. Whereas Syed Mohammed spoke in a manner that, had the English been, as he supposed, enemies, must have precipitated hostilities and having done so, again Egyptian-like, made no adequate attempt to protect the town from the possible consequences of his rashness. Whether fortunately or otherwise, no man can say. Nelson, too intent upon the object he had in view to be moved from his immediate purpose, took the rebuff offered him calmly, and, after a day's rest off the port, sailed away, leaving the Alexandrians to congratulate themselves upon their own astuteness, and to indulge themselves in vainglorious anticipations of the prodigies of valor they were to perform should the French land upon their soils. 
A week having passed by without the appearance of an enemy, the people had regained their wonted calm, when, as unexpectedly as though no warning had been given of its coming, the French fleet of twenty-one vessels of war and over three hundred transports was seen in the offing heading for the port. This sudden and unlooked-for proof of the reality of the danger they had refused to credit produced the utmost consternation. Once more, the governor dispatched messengers in all haste to the capital, and describing the French fleet as one without beginning or end, begged earnestly, but all too late, for aid. The people of Cairo, like those of Alexandria, when their first alarm at the arrival of Nelson's fleet had passed away, seeing in his departure a confirmation of their own conception of his visit, ceased to think of the matter, save as the subject of jest, but were overwhelmed with dismay as the new alarm, even the government which had been but little moved by the first, being now stirred to activity and a sense of danger. The government of Egypt was then, at least nominally, such as it had been constituted after the Turkish conquest in 1517 by Sultan Selim. Keenly recognizing the impossibility of enforcing his authority in a province of the empire so far off and so difficult of access from his own capital, the Sultan had, not unwisely, contented himself with organizing a system of government that was, in his opinion, the one most likely to ensure the permanency of his sovereignty, and guarantee him the receipt of a goodly share of the wealth of his new possession. Egypt was placed, therefore, as the other provinces of the empire then were, and still are, under the government of a pacha, who was, in effect, though he was accorded neither the style nor the honor of that rank, a viceroy. But the sultan, anxious to hold the pacha in check by some power ever-present and active, divided the territory under his charge into twenty-four districts, and placed each of these as a kind of local governorship in the hands of a Mameluk chief, or bey. Of the beys chosen for these posts, seven were to form a diwan, or council of state, nominally to advise and assist, but in reality to control the pacha, whose decisions this council was empowered to veto. All real power was therefore vested in the Mamelukes, who, it is perhaps scarcely necessary to recall, were the troops that, originally brought into the country as slaves by the Fatimite caliphs, had gradually developed their power and influence until their chiefs had become feudal lords, holding lands and keeping, according to their individual means, troops of mounted followers, whose physical qualities and effective training rendered them one of the finest bodies of cavalry that has ever existed. As must invariably happen when a weak and incompetent government seeks the aid of slaves or mercenaries to sustain its failing dominion, the Mamelukes had eventually acquired such power that they were enabled to usurp the government of the country, and had, as we have seen, maintained their position as sultans of Egypt from the time of Salah and Deep up to the Turkish conquest. Under the system of government established by the Sultan Selim, Though unable to regain the absolute independence they had lost, they soon recovered almost all their former influence and power, and as they controlled the military strength of the country, the small Turkish garrison being quite helpless to oppose them, they soon became, as before, the real rulers of the land. Being invariably foreigners, or the immediate descendants of foreigners, Circassians, Armenians, or other slaves, it was but natural that these bays should have no sympathy for the people of the country. With the arrogant characteristics of a military body that has attained political power, they despised all outside of their own ranks, and held it as a disgrace to intermarry with the Egyptians. Actuated by none but the most selfish of aims, they sought and cared for nothing but their own interests, each of them being a veritable Ishmael, looking upon all men as his enemies, only accepting the cooperation of his fellow Mamelukes as a necessary measure of defense, confiding in the loyalty of his immediate followers only so far as he was able to control them by rendering their faithfulness to him conducive to their own interests. 
Among themselves they of necessity accepted the dominion of the one who by force of arms, intrigues, or other favouring circumstances, was in a position to enforce his will against that of the others. And, as might be expected, the Bey who held this prominent position was the one to whom the post of Sheikh el-Balid, or governor of Cairo, was accorded, that being the post of all others the most coveted by them, this Bey being, in practice, the real governor of the country, his power being only limited by the necessity he was under of consulting and conciliating the wishes of the other members of the Diwan. It may seem strange that with the power they thus possessed, the Mamluks should continue to offer even a faint show of respect to the Pacha, or of loyalty to the empire, for light as was the yoke these laid upon them, it was sufficiently galling to men who lived as they did, each wholly absorbed in the prosecution of his own personal aims and interests, and the more so that, as the wealth of the country declined under their greedy and ruthless rule, the remittances of revenue exacted by the sultan was a yearly draft that seriously limited their resources. But if the Mameluk hated and despised all men not of his own class, he was in turn hated by all others with a hatred all the fiercer and more bitter that it had no outlet. Thus, with no friend upon whom he could rely save his own right arm, the Mameluk chief, however powerful, was fain to accept the patronage of the sultan as the only aid he could look for in his combat with the world, and he must needs, therefore, be content to pay for that aid with a certain tribute of grudging loyalty. Nor must it be forgotten that, ever ready to combine and cooperate against a common foe, each Mameluk was equally ready to turn his hand and sword against his fellow, if therefore he might gain aught for himself. Had it not been for the mutual distrust the knowledge of this fact forced upon them, they might easily have regained the independence wrested from them by the Turks. This had, indeed, been momentarily accomplished by Ali Bey, who, in 1776, not only succeeded in setting himself up as Sultan of Egypt, but aspiring to extend his rule, had attacked and conquered the Mohammedan holy cities of Mecca and Medina in Arabia. His triumph was, however, but short-lived, for Mohammed Bey, the most trusted of his favorites, to whom he had confided the command of an army for the conquest of Syria, abandoned his task, and, revolting, took his master Ali prisoner by a treacherous ambush. Unable alone to maintain the power he had thus for the moment seized, the traitor at once tendered his submission to the sultan, and was, in reward for his fidelity, appointed Pacha of Egypt. His tenancy of this office was, however, but brief, his death soon after, leaving the country once more a prey to the mutual rivalries of the bays. In the contest for supremacy that followed, two of these, freed slaves of his, though constantly opposed to and frequently in arms against each other, eventually agreed to share the power between them, the one, Murad Bey, becoming the military chief of the Mameluks, and the other, Ibrahim Bey, the Sheikh al-Baled. Under the joint sway of these two men, the country enjoyed a brief period of greater quiet and peace than it had known for a long time, and although the tyranny and oppression from which they suffered was little, if at all, abated, the people had been so completely despoiled before, and had so little to lose that, as he that is down need fear no fall, they had but small anxiety for the morrow. This was the condition that existed on that memorable night of the 23rd of June in 1798, the eve of the day upon which Cairo had its first warning of the approach of the French. Could a plebiscite of the hopes and fears of the people have been taken on that evening, we may be sure that it would have been unfavorable to any change, and that they would have elected to bear the ills they had, rather than face the possibility, far worse, any change might bring to them. End of chapter 3 The Dawn of the New Period Recording by Graham Macmillan, San Diego, California, 2012